0: So the reason we start at 6.15 is because when we started this series of teachings on Friday night many years ago, we started with a Lamrim text that described the meditation uh, on the the Buddha and taking refuge, bodhicitta, seven-limb prayer, um, mandala offering, request to the guru, and... The Buddha's Mantra. And we did that at 6 o'clock and then started the teachings at 6.15. When we finished that text, then we told everybody, please do the practice, continue doing the practice on your own, you know, wherever you are, listening to the teachings from afar. And so start at 6 o'clock, do the practice, and then at 6.15, uh we'll generate our motivation and and continue with the teachings but i wonder if people are doing that they are good okay okay then we uh we'll go right into the uh generating our our motivation now we won't do any prayers <clears throat> So on the walking here from the cabin, I was talking to Veneval And and uh, we were talking about all the insects that appear on the same day. And it reminded me when I lived in Darmsala on a certain day at the, towards the beginning of monsoon, then on one day, All these caterpillars appeared, and they made long chains of caterpillars, nose to tush, nose to tush, and that stretched clear across, you know, wherever you were walking. And it was amazing to me how these little beings all appear on the same day, and they all know what to do. They must have had some purpose that lining up like that served, although I didn't know what it was. And they all cooperated. You didn't see any uh, straggling caterpillars going their own way or saying, don't tell me to line up, I'll do what I want. They all somehow knew for their protection to work together. And yet it's so strange that as human beings we have human intelligence, which is so much superior to the intelligence of the caterpillars. But we use our intelligence to pick fights with each other. To be rebellious, to be uncooperative, to stake out our territory, and to be right in our arguments, and to win all fights, and to only do what we feel like doing. So it's strange, isn't it, that as intelligent, supposedly intelligent beings, we have so much difficulty cooperating, especially to solve common problems and bring about the common good. So I think if we really want to be bodhisattvas, we have to look at that side of ourself that wants to be right, stake out our territory, not do anything we don't want to or don't feel like. Because if we're going to be bodhisattvas and really work for the benefit of others, we're going to have to learn to respond to conditions as they appear, not as we would like them to be. And that entails being flexible, being cooperative, giving up our own trip, and considering others as equally important as we are, if not more important than we are. So take a few minutes now and think of some ways in which you can subdue how the self-centered mind particularly arises in you and prevents you from having that attitude of cooperation and compassion that isn't necessary to really benefit sentient beings extensively. And in that way, generate bodhicitta. Last week we uh, started on Chapter Two, and we got as far as the section on the Six Root Afflictions, which is in the middle of page sixty four. So in chapter one, we talked about the four truths, and uh, especially, no, actually. First chapter, we talked about the four truths. Second chapter, we talked about the truth of dukkha. This is the third chapter right now, which is the truth of the origins of dukkha. So here we're going to look into afflictions, yeah, and how they uh, create karma. We covered karma quite extensively at the end of the last volume, the vo- volume two. So we won't go through that again in this volume, but please refer to that. And if you didn't. Uh, or if you weren't part of the teachings for that volume, go go through them now and read the book and understand, because karma is a very important topic in, in Buddhism. And, uh, you know, it, yeah, <laughs> we need to understand it in order to, to live a good life. And then uh, we need to understand what causes karma, which is the afflictions, particularly ignorance. So, even uh, when we're ordinary beings, uh, when we create positive karma, it's still created under the influence of ignorance, which is an affliction. So, not all afflictions are non-virtuous. Ignorance is not. Yeah. So, a few others aren't. But, under their influence, we can create either non-virtuous actions or virtuous actions. So in this chapter, we're going to be going through the afflictions and especially uh, the root afflictions that are the the root source of our samsara and then the auxiliary afflictions and then the fetters and there's uh, underlying tendencies and there's all sorts of different categories for different mental states. Okay. So this is kind of like Buddhist psychology here, the psychological map of the mind. And then when we see the non-virtuous mental factors, uh, then we have to learn the antidotes to them and apply those antidotes to subdue those aspects of our own mind. Okay, so the six root afflictions. So it starts out, studying the laboratory that is our own mind, we notice that we can have radically different emotions at different times. His Holiness always talks about the real laboratory not being the laboratory at a university, where, she, where you measure things with uh, scientific equipment, but the laboratory that's inside here, and to really observe how our mind functions. Yeah? and uh, And here, especially starting out, how we can have very different emotions at very different times. And so we think of ourselves as very consistent people, don't we? You know? I'm a consistent person but in one day we can be very inconsistent and when pe- people greet us they're not sure in, you know who they're greeting is it you know the happy one the irritated one the drowsy one the vengeful one the giddy one you know and We think, oh, I'm completely consistent, but actually we're like emotional yo-yos. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah. So it's okay to admit it. Yeah, we're all like that. (laughs) Okay. We can be loving one moment and irritated the next. Definitely. Some emotions arise more easily or are more habitual than others. Our anger surges in a moment. Fortitude is difficult to cultivate, isn't it? Anger, like this. Somebody says something small, boom! You know, contemplating fortitude and calming the mind, we have to spend some time working at it. Okay. (laughs) Sometimes emotions bring peace or some emotions bring peace others disturb our mental tranquility so not all emotions are afflictions okay some are some aren't yeah okay so the ones that disturb our mental tr- tranquility are called afflictions and asanga identifies these in his compendium of knowledge which is an Abhidharma text. And he says, an affliction is defined as a phenomenon that when it arises is disturbing in character and that through arising disturbs the mind stream. So it has the nature of being disturbing and it disturbs everything else. Okay, it makes the mind stream, yeah, unhappy, agitated, agitated. Um. Yeah, ill at ease. So afflictions are distinct mental factors that when they arise in our minds cause our minds to be unpeaceful and unsubdued. Yeah, so the particular mental factors. Yeah. Afflictions may be emotions, attitudes, or views. So some are emotions like anger or compassion um, well a- if compassion isn't an, an affliction uh, if we say anger and vengeance okay so those are afflictions that are emotions uh, afflictions that are attitudes uh, maybe uh a number of those uh, not, nothing's coming to mind at the moment, but the ones that are views, there's many of those. So maybe attitudes and views are coming together. But views, view of the um, of a personal identity, yeah, view thinking uh, that certain rights and ethical conduct is virtuous when it's actually non-virtuous. Uh, views uh, thinking that the three jewels don't exist, these kinds of things. So the word affliction comes up, covers a wide variety. Oh, so here's an attitude, maybe doubt. Okay, doubt uh, inclined towards the negative. Yeah, it's not an emotion, but we would consider it an attitude probably. So the three principal afflictions are our old favorites, uh, ignorance, anger, and attachment. Okay, sometimes instead of anger, we say animosity. Okay, so sometimes the actual translation terms change, but these are the three. And uh, they're called the three poisonous minds because they poison our mind. Although compassion may disturb our mind in the sense that, you know, we... we Want sentient beings to be free of suffering. Um, it isn't an affliction. Okay. Genuine compassion, as opposed to pity or personal distress when seeing others suffer, is deliberately cultivated for a good purpose and is supported by reasoning. Okay. When we fall into personal distress, and we're worried, we're alarmed, we're depressed, we feel despair seeing others suffer, okay? That is not supported by reasoning. That's supported by ignorance, okay? And uh, so that is, is an affliction. So we have to differentiate compassion from personal distress and also from pity, yeah? Pity is kind of a link to arrogance. You know, it places us higher than somebody else. Oh, I feel so sorry for you. I pity you as if I don't have that problem because I'm so good. Yeah. So pity would definitely be a a negative emotion as well. Unable to ignore sentient beings' dukkha Compassion wishes for them to be free of it. Our minds may be temporarily disturbed because our apathy has been challenged, Okay, but this type of mental disturbance spurs us to be more tolerant and kind. It makes our minds strong and determined to aid others and brings benefit to ourselves and others. Whereas personal distress... Okay, doesn't make us more tolerant or open-minded. Okay, it locks us into our own personal anxiety. Um, it doesn't make our mind strong. It makes our mind quite weak. Yeah, we don't have control over it. And we don't have the wish to aid others because we're too involved in feeling sorry for ourselves because we're suffering seeing other beings suffer. Okay. So you have to do, you know, really look at the difference be- between um, compassion and personal distress, compassion and pity, and be able to identify those in your own experience, not just to spout the explanation, but to really uh, see them when they arise in our mind. Hmm? So afflictions, on the other hand, arise without good reasons, and they lack a foundation in reality. Although when we're under the influence of afflictions, we think that they are incredibly true and that that's the only way a a reasonable person could possibly feel or think. So even though afflictions have no good reasons, and lack any foundation in reality. When they manifest in our, our mind, we are completely overwhelmed and believe them. Yeah. So it's, you know, they lie to us and we salute them and follow, you know, and and believe what they're telling us. Okay. Um, Because we are habituated with afflictions, they arise easily when we encounter certain conditions. They disturb tranquility of the mind and have the long-term effect of increasing our problems and unhappiness. So when you are unhappy, yeah, when you are unhappy, when you are upset or angry, there's probably a non-virtuous affliction arising in the mind. Yeah? So usually if we're unhappy, we don't think, oh, that's because there's an affliction in my mind. Yeah. We think, oh, that's because something in the external world isn't going the way I want it to go. But we don't associate the afflictions, with uh, unhappiness. And we don't associate the afflictions with bad moods. and But bad moods are basically having uh, a, you know, a low-grade affliction manifest in the mind. But it's amazing how we, we don't see these. We don't understand what our own experience is. Huh? I mean, I was shocked when I was reading one Abhi Dharma text that was essentially saying that when we're unhappy, anger is present. Okay. No, anger is not present. Uh, well, hmm. When there's unhappiness, Uh, Yeah, I am angry. I am irritated. I am annoyed. I don't like the unhappiness. I want it to go away. So I think I'm unhappy at the person or the situation because I think that is causing the emotion. But actually, I'm unhappy with the emotion because that emotion is uncomfortable and disturbing. Unlike virtuous mental states such as integrity and compassion, afflictions lack mental clarity and we often find ourselves justifying their presence. Yeah? So another red flag, you know, indicating check up if there's affliction in your mind if we start justifying things. I have a right to be angry because he criticized me unfairly. Yeah? We're justifying our anger. Except we don't feel like we're justifying our anger. We feel like we're just responding as any reasonable person would do to some idiot who said something untrue about me, even though if it, it happens to be true. <laughs> okay? But think about it. Why must we be angry when someone criticizes us? Yeah. I have a right to be angry because he criticized me unfairly. Okay? Why do you have to be angry when somebody criticizes you? Why? Is there a good reason, you know, why to be angry? Does the anger benefit you? Is it, you know, based on sound reasoning? Does it help the world? Why must we be angry when someone criticizes? Because they criticize me. Yes, they did, but why do I have to be angry because of it? Because what they said was untrue. Well, yeah, it may be untrue, but why do I have to be angry if somebody says something untrue about me? Because they're ruining my reputation. What is your reputation beyond other people's thoughts? Why do you have to be angry when your reputation is ruined? because then I won't be able to be successful in the world. Well, check up. Are you really sure you won't be successful? And what does being successful in the world really mean? Now, what does it mean to be a successful human being? And you have to have a good reputation to to be successful. Did Milarepa have a good reputation? People thought he was out of his mind. Yeah, I mean, who in their right mind would go sit in a cave and eat nettles? When you could be, you know, doing something much more interesting and socially acceptable... And make some money off of it. Okay. You know, Milarepi, he must be crazy. So is anger the only possible response to this situation? Does anger increase our ability to communicate well or destroy it? When you get angry at somebody who criticized you, do you communicate well? Yeah. When you're angry for any reason, do you communicate well? Yeah. We communicate loudly in case the other person has hearing problems. We communicate it by repeating it many times in case they have short term memory loss. (laughs) But do we really communicate? Yeah, or are we essentially vomiting our anger on the environment and who, whatever poor person has to be, you know, happens to be standing near us at that moment? Okay, so questioning ourselves in this way clears away confusion and enables us to see the faulty quote-quote logic behind the afflictions and thus to dispel them. Afflictions give rise to actions that are considered destructive in all cultures, such as killing, stealing, lying, so forth. These actions perpetuate the cycle of misery. Because they bring our ruin, we need to be aware of their nature causes, functions and disadvantages. If a country has an enemy that is destroying its well-being, it tries to learn everything it can about that enemy in order to combat it, combat it, and prevent it from devastating the country. Yeah. So we have the CIA, we have the FBI, we have the National Security Council, we have Homeland Security, we have so many intelligence agencies that they get confused and don't share information. Yeah? So, but what we really need to check out is, you know, spy on this one and try and get to know the afflictions and how they think and how they arise and how they trick us. yeah, Because they trick us all the time. Mm -hmm. Similarly, we need to know everything we can about the enemy, the afflictions that destroy our own and others' happiness. But simply learning about the afflictions is not sufficient. We must also combat them by hearing, thinking, and meditating on their counter forces as described in the Buddha's teachings. During, doing this is the crux of Dharma practice. So, what is real Dharma practice? Combating the afflictions. Okay, we get confused. We think dharma. real Dharma practice is putting on robes, shaving our head, uh, you know, turning a prayer wheel, having carrying our mala around with us and reciting mantra, having a beautiful altar, making prostrations, you know. We think all that is Dharma practice. Actually, all of that is an aid to help us change our mind. Okay. In and of itself, it's not dharma practice. The real dharma practice is combating the afflictions. Yeah. But it's strange because when we're in a bad mood, when we're angry, when we're upset, you know, it's like, well, I can't go to teachings. I I can't go to posada. I can't do this. I can't do that, because I just don't. I'm in a bad mood. I don't feel good. Yeah. So we don't even recognize the affliction and how it's harming us, let alone do something about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when the affliction arises in our mind, we just follow it. And the affliction says, Well, I don't know about the four truths, if they're really true or not. And affliction says, uh, what's wrong with attachment? It makes you happy. What those people are saying is stupid. Uh-huh. And affliction says we were talking at lunchtime at our table about uh, um, the kinds of things that people look at when they want to ordain, you know. Oh, what is the schedule at this community? Is it a schedule that is comfortable for me? What are the rooms like in this monastery? Mm-hmm. Yeah, are the beds soft enough? Do I have a single room all to myself or do I have a double room? Yeah. Do I have to wash dishes or do do they have a paid staff that cleans the dishes? and does the office work, and works in the forest, and vacuums the floor, so that all I have to do is sit and be holy, study the dharma, do my practice. That's why I'm ordaining, yeah. And and people, you know, these are the the, the criteria people look for, yeah. Does the teacher have a good sense of humor? Are they entertaining? Do the teachings last too long? Does the teacher repeat themselves again and again and again ad nauseum? Yeah. Are the other students there nice people? In other words, are they going to be nice to me? So the whole criteria for figuring out whether you're going to ordain or not, is the eight worldly concerns. Yeah? Will I be comfortable and happy? Okay? That's how the afflictions trick us. Yeah. Completely trick us. This monastery, like you go into one of the Chinese monasteries for for the you know the the juniors. It's a big room, with different beds, not not regular beds like we have. They're platform beds. Okay, every bed looks exactly the same. The quilt is folded up. They all have the same quilts. They all have the same pillows. The quilts and the pillows are folded up and stacked in the same place of every bed. There's cupboards along the wall that all look alike. And you get one cupboard to put your stuff in. And all your clothes look alike. All your shoes look alike. Okay. So you walk in, and this is your bedroom. And you, you can't even have your own altar with my Buddha pictures and my teacher and, you know, my offering bowls. Yeah, you can't even have that. Everything is packed away and everything looks exactly the same. And you go... I'm ordaining to live here and do that. And I have to work in the kitchen so many hours a week, and I have to wash dishes, and I have to work, you know, setting up the altar, and I have to sweep, and I have to vacuum, and I have to clean. And then I have to be at chanting practice early in the morning, late in the evening, and I have to bow. And I don't have enough time for my meditation and for my study. And that's why I came here. What is this place all about? It is crazy. And I can't have my own phone, and I can't use the computer to email my friends. Uh-huh. This place is a nut house, you know. I'm gonna go somewhere where I can be happy. Go. <laughs> go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you see how we don't we don't see the afflictions as afflictions. We don't see the eight worldly concerns as interferences. We see them as conditions that have to be met in order for us to be happy, so that when we are happy, we can then practice the Dharma. Okay, so we don't see working with our unhappy mind as practicing the Dharma. We don't see working with the mind that doesn't like to sleep in a room with 30 other people where I have no individuality. We don't see working with that mind as Dharma practice. We see all of that as interfering with our spiritual practice. Because our spiritual practice, you know, we should be blissed out and holy. Nāvāvītā āmārībhēmēyum Yeah, and then I go back to my own room, and my own private room, not a double room, with the blanket I like, and the kind of sheets I like, and the carpeting that's in the color that I like, and a comfortable chair, and all my stuff, starting with my altar, you know? And all my stuff where I am comfortable, yeah, and far away from where the person who rings the bell or hits the board walks. Yeah. So I... I could have a good excuse for not waking up, and being at uh, at morning chanting and morning meditation because I didn't hear it. Yeah, yeah. Even though the person hits the board or rings the bell uh, all along the corridors. <laughs> okay, so uh, do you do you see how how we We miss the point sometimes, yeah? That when we have problems, when we have difficulties, you know, this is dharma practice. This is when we, we practice the mind training. Yeah, This is why they say that when bodhisattvas hear somebody say, I need this, give me this, give me this, Bodhisattvas go, fantastic! Now I have the opportunity to practice generosity. You know, we go, I should have given something to you. Yeah, what have you ever done for me that I should give something to you? (laughs) Okay? So... This is why we have to see, you know, what is really practicing the dharma? It's combating the afflictions. Okay? And we don't combat the afflictions by telling ourselves we shouldn't have them or by beating ourselves up or stuffing the affliction down. Okay? We deal with the afflictions by learning the antidotes and then training our mind to think that way, okay? I find one good antidote when I'm unhappy to the unhappy mind, if I happen to think of it. (laughs) One good antidote, because usually when there's unhappiness, I don't want to experience this. I'm sick of being unhappy. I should be happy. So what I tell myself is, I'm unhappy, that's really good. Yeah, it's good I'm unhappy. My self-centered mind doesn't like it. Yeah? My self-centered mind is whining. But unhappiness helps me reduce my arrogance and my pride. And unhappiness makes me have more compassion for other people who are unhappy. And anyway, having an unhappy mind is the result of my own negative karma. So what am I complaining about to start with? If I don't like this result, I have to stop creating the similar cause in the future. Yeah. So I find it so helpful as soon as I say, Oh, it's good that I'm unhappy. Just saying that to myself automatically changes my mind. Yeah. Just saying that automatically changes it. Yeah instead of I'm unhappy and it's not fair and I should be happy and I deserve to be happy and everybody should make me happy and these people are making me miserable and they aren't even aware of it or doing anything about it. Yeah. So it completely cuts out all that rubbish. Or like when we do something and we don't get our way. Yeah? I didn't get my way. That's good! Because I am so stubborn. I always have to get my way. I always have to be right. I always have to prove my case. Now I'm not getting my way. This is good. Yeah? This is working against my arrogance and my pride and my self-centeredness. It's good I don't get my way. Anyway, who says my way is the right way? These people, they're doing something in a different way. Their way may be better than my way. It really might. And I might learn something from this situation. Okay? So you have we have to learn how to deal with with the afflictions instead of just caving into them. Okay, so doing this is the crux of Dharma practice. The Buddha listed 84,000 afflictions. Okay, and we all have all 84,000. So don't think you have 83,991 are 999, and so you're better than everybody else. And don't think you have 84,001, so you're worse than everybody else. Okay, everybody's the same here. The most prominent of, of our 84,000 afflictions are the root afflictions and auxiliary afflictions. In the treasury of knowledge, Vasubandhu spoke of six root afflictions, the last one being afflictive views, which in turn is subdivided into five. So by that rendition, then there is uh, ten. In the Compendium of Knowledge, his older brother, Asanga, listed ten root afflictions, the first five that Vasubandhu listed, plus the five afflictive views. Okay, Do you think the two brothers fought over how they listed these? Wait, there's six of them, how dare you say there's 10? Well, the 10 are the same as the six, why don't you expand them and be clearer? (laughs) Although the two lists come to the same point, there are some differences in how a few of the afflictions are described because the treasury of knowledge was written from the Vaibhāsaka viewpoint, while the compendium of knowledge is from the Chittamādra or Yogācāra viewpoint. In general, we will follow the latter, except when the Prasangika presentation differs. Okay, So this occurs mainly in the, the descriptions of ignorance and the view of a personal identity. Those two are where the differences in these schools really appear. The six root afflictions are attachment, anger, arrogance, ignorance, deluded doubt, and afflictive views. And then we're going to go into them. So first one, attachment. Why do they put attachment first? I feel happy when I'm attached. What's wrong with that? Why is attachment first? So attachment is a mental factor that, based on distorted attention, that exaggerates the attractiveness of a polluted object, in other words, an object under the influence of ignorance, it's based on exaggerating the attractiveness of a polluted object, wishes for and takes a strong interest in it. Okay, so it's based on exaggeration of good qualities. Again, when we have attachment, we don't think that our our feeling is based on exaggeration of good qualities. We think we are perceiving that object or person exactly in a realistic way, okay? Completely realistic. So how I'm perceiving that person, they really have all those good qualities. How I'm perceiving this object, or this job, or, you know, this widget, it really has these good qualities. Okay. So we don't see it as a ba- based on exaggeration of something that isn't there. The object could be a material object, a person, or a place, or it could be praise or even an idea. Attachment functions to produce discontent and to perpetuate the cycle of existence looking at our own experiences, we can see how true this is. So we have to look, you know, do a little life review. Look at the times when attachment was in your mind. Yeah. What were you doing? How were you living? What decisions did you make? And after you, you know, looked at that person or idea or job or whatever it was through the eyes of attachment, how long did that view last? Or did at some point you change your mind about that person or object or situation or place? Okay, so this is a general description of attachment. There are many degrees and variations of attachment. So it Attachment covers a whole lot of things, okay? Some instances of attachment that arise in daily life are greed that wants more than our own fair share. Okay. Of course, we don't like to say, I'm greedy. We just go back and get more before everybody else does. Yeah. Or there's nothing wrong with getting more before you know, when we need more. But when we calculate to eat at a certain speed so we can jump up and get more of that carrot cake before other people lay their little hands on it, then there's going to be greed there, okay? Or when we just look, so many situations we look at how can I get the best deal. So this isn't saying that we shouldn't try and you know get get a good deal and that we should just be innocent victims of people's connivory. We're not saying that. Okay. But it's the the mood, the the graspiness of, you know, there's a certain quality to that. Yeah. So what we often confuse with attachment is or about attachment is we think that if we uh give up if we don't have attachment then we don't have any preferences that everything is okay that we stop evaluating things uh because you will just get attached to them. But we have to evaluate things. There are correct ways to evaluate things without projecting qualities or exaggerating qualities that aren't there. Yeah. When, uh, when you go out to buy wood to build the, sh- the woodshed, you look for lumber that is new, that is good quality, that is straight, you're not attached to that lumber. You're, you're practical getting what you need, and you're getting the materials you need. Okay, so it, uh, giving up attachment doesn't mean you go in the lumber yard, you get everything that's old and discarded, and you get all the bent rusty nails, and you know, it doesn't mean that. Okay? So we have to be very clear. We still can have preferences. We need to be able to discriminate different functions, different uh, qualities, and so on, you know, to be a, a wise person in the world. Yeah. But attachment is when we exaggerate their importance and cling, you know, Cling, that's the thing. Our little sticky paws, you know. (laughs) Did your mother say that to you when you had dirty hands? And, you know, yeah. So, yeah, that's attachment. But, you know, I I remember being with some of my teachers, and they have definite preferences. Yeah? When you set up the altar, this is how you, you set it up. You know, you don't just put, you know, the Buddhist statue kind of, you know, underneath the altar and your shoes on top of the altar and, you know, dirty water in the offering bowls. No, there's a certain way that you do it, okay? Yeah, so there's, there's, we can have preferences that are reasonable without exaggerating qualities. Okay, so that's important. Okay, so, yeah, greed that wants more than our fair share. So this is also behind a lot of uh, the environmental degradation and the climate problems that we're having, is plain old simple greed. Okay, Uh, also attachment to our ideas that leads to stubborn insistence on being right. This is where that spoon goes. Yeah. Yeah. This is how we do this. This, you know, way of doing things is stupid. Okay? It's got to be done this way. Okay? So that's attachment. Stubborn ideas. Okay? Attachment to reputation. I want to look good in front of everybody, so I'll do a dance so so that I can be what I think they think I should be. Attachment to praise. You know, how can I please this person so they'll say nice, sweet words about me? Pleasing sensory experiences. Yeah. I want a a bed that's just hard enough, but not too hard. And the perfect weather. Yeah. Okay. We also become attached to people, which leads to having unrealistic expectations of them or of our relationships with them. Like, this person will meet all my needs. This is, this relationship is going to be the way it is now forever, okay? So we have these unrealistic expectations and then find it difficult to adapt to change that doesn't agree with our pre-written script of, of what should happen. This in turn leads to disappointment and friction in those relationships, and feelings of bitterness or betrayal when the relationships don't continue as expected. Yeah? You had that experience? Okay, so those are all examples of attachment. So it's really good to spend some time and look at your own life and, and, you know, See when you have attachment in the in the past, and what was the outcome of that? Yeah, and see that you know the more we're attached to something, yeah, the more we suffer when we can't get it, when it we separate from it, when we get its opposite. Yeah. So the more attachment we have is a setup for unhappiness. Where in the worldly life, we think the more attachment we have, the happier we are, and the more successful we are. Okay, covetousness is a coarse form of attachment. As one of the ten non-virtues, covetousness easily leads to actions that directly harm others, such as stealing or unwise sexual relationships. Other afflictions derived from attachment are miserliness, that doesn't want to share our possessions. This is mine. I'm not giving it away. I'm not even loaning it. Okay, miserliness, stinginess. Haughtiness, that is, attached to our good fortune. The, the factor mental factor that is often uh, translated as haughtiness is also translated as complacency, which is interesting. You know, what's the similarity between haughtiness and complacency? They're both attached to our own good fortune, aren't they? Yeah. In English, the two words mean different things. But when we look at the definition, yeah, the definition could fit either of those two. Okay. Another example of attachment is restlessness that distracts the mind to desirable objects during meditation or even when you're not meditating yeah the mind is restless looking for something nice you know even just a little bit of entertainment mm-hmm. Okay, then attachment and aspiration are distinct mental factors with different functions. So here's another way that we confu- we have so many so much confusion about attachment, okay? Not only do we think, well, I can't have preferences and I can't evaluate things because all that is attachment, which is not, is we think attachment and aspiration are the same things. Or attachment and wanting something is the same thing. You know, in other words, I can't want anything. Yeah. If I'm thirsty, you know, I can't say, can I have a glass of water? That's attachment. You know, if you're thirsty and your body is dehydrated, you need to drink a glass of water. Yeah. Now, if you're going, I want warm water like this, and I want a lot of it, and I want more of it, and I don't want it, you know, with this and that and the other thing in it. Okay. But you're thirsty, you need a glass of water. That's not attachment. Every aspiration we have is not attachment. Okay. So they're distinct mental factors with distinct functions. Although although both are attracted to their object, so that's how we confuse them, because they both are attracted to their object. But attachment is based on distorted attention that exaggerates the object's attractiveness or projects good qualities that are not there. That's how... Attachment works. Seeing the object inaccurately, attachment clings to it and does not want to be separated from it. We become attached to people, money, and possessions, love and approval, good food, and other pleasurable sensory experiences, and so on, and are certain that the good qualities we see in hair, in that person or object, okay? So we are not agra- exaggerating that person or thing or situation or place has those excellent qualities and will always have them. If our perception were accurate, yeah, everybody should see the person or thing as we do and desire it with as much as we do. Okay, so if the thing that we're attached to, that we think is so great, had those qualities from its own side. Everybody should see it that way. Okay, so the guy with the set, with the corner office, who uh, you know. Is, is doing financial deals all day and feeling very proud of himself, if that, you know, and is attached to that and the status, if that situation really had those qualities, then everybody would see those qualities and want that. Yeah, do you want a court in our office to do financial deals all day? Boring. Yeah, that's about the last thing that I would find interesting. Well, there's a few other things, too, but that's, you know, I would just be so bored. But if it really had those good qualities, everybody should see it as desirable. Everybody would want that job. Yeah. If the person you fell in love with really was so wonderful, and and, you know, and you say like the love songs, I can't live without you, then everybody would feel that way about the person you fell in love with and would feel they couldn't live without them. But as much as you say, I can't live without you, somebody else is looking at that person and say, I can live very well without you. (laughs) What we think are beautiful clothes, nobody else would be caught dead wearing them. Yeah, what we think is a beautiful hairstyle, Yeah. Or beautiful hair just to start with. Other people, poof. Okay. But if these qualities actually inherit in the people, in the objects, okay, then everybody should see it the same way. Because it would be an objective entity out there independent with its own qualities, yeah? But clearly, that is not the case. Okay. Now, so that's attachment. Aspiration focuses on its intended object and takes a strong interest in it, but is not necessarily based on exaggerating or projecting the object's good qualities, okay? So some aspiration may be involved in exaggerating, okay? You see some attractive person, and then you aspire to go talk to them, so you figure out where they're going to be at the party, and you kind of bump into them, or whatever you do to meet somebody, okay? So that is attachment, you say I aspired to eat the meet the person, but you know, it's attachment, there's exaggeration involved there. Okay. But aspire uh, uh, the aspirations seeking a good rebirth, seeking liberations, seeking full awakening, these are based on realistically seeing beneficial qualities that are present in those states. There's no exaggeration. In his Abhidharma text, the Tibetan scholar Chim Jampa Yang clarified that the aspirations for fortunate rebirth, liberation, or awakening are virtuous. They are not attachment. Okay, Because this comes up. It came up during our course on the four truths, you know. Can I crave uh, enlightenment, you know? Yeah. So no, those things that those things are as, aspirations. They're not craving. They're not attachment. Furthermore, Vasubandhu said that objects giving rise to attachment are polluted. Okay, they're, uh, they exist or are created under the influence of ignorance. Since Buddhahood and the three jewels are unpolluted. They cannot induce afflictions in others' minds. But somebody says, but if I think when I'm a Buddha, everybody will respect me, okay, isn't that attachment to Buddhahood? Or I want to become a Buddha because then I won't suffer in samsara anymore. And people will put my picture in their houses, you know, or whatever. Yeah? So that that is not aspiration, that's attachment, okay? So that person suffers from attachment to reputation, not attachment to Buddhahood. Okay? So we have to have some discrimination here. Otherwise, really, you, you see people get very confused, you know? Craving is a form of attachment and is usually seen as non-virtuous. And this part is interesting. However, craving, in quotation marks, can refer to other forms of attachment that may be temporarily useful. So sometimes our teachers use our attachment to help us break through the attachment and see something in a more clear way, I'd heard of uh, one one person who really liked eggs and their their monastery didn't serve eggs, and they wanted eggs and craved eggs and really, you know, and so somebody had invited them out for the day to to do something. And the abbess told the person who was taking that that nun out, feed her eggs all day long. And so she ate eggs all day long. That cured her of her attachment. (laughs) Okay? So sometimes we can, you know, you can use attachment to cure you of it. Okay, so here's some examples. For example, in the case of someone who is miserly and doesn't want to part with his possessions, the craving to be wealthy in a future life can motivate him to counteract his stinginess and become generous in this life. So this person, you know, wants to be rich in the next life. They believe in karma and they think generosity is the cause of wealth, you know. But they they are stingy and crave their own possessions. But when they hear this about karma, then they think, oh, well, I really want to be wealthy in my next life so I will practice generosity now. Okay. So I so even though this craving seeks happiness in samsara it is a step up from craving the happiness of only this life and thus is considered a virtuous mind. Okay. Now what I find very interesting is it is considered a virtuous mind. You're not clinging to something from just this life. You're at least thinking of next life. You have faith and confidence in, in karma and its effects. And so that motivates you to do something virtuous. Okay, What I find sometimes is people uh, who say, but it's still so selfish. You know, it's so selfish to practice generosity because you want to be rich in your future life. So I'm not going to practice generosity. Okay? So they shoot themselves in the foot by misunderstanding it. You know, I don't want to be a selfish person that just craves to be wealthy in my next life. So... I'm not going to do what all these other people do with their polluted motivation, and so I'm just not going to give things. Yeah. And I've met people that think like that, and yeah. So it, it we have to see here, it, well, yeah, aspiring for something better in samsara in your future life, it's it's not the highest aspiration, but it's definitely better than seeking out the, the happiness of this life with the eight worldly concerns. Isn't it? Because it's, it's at least based on, you know, I shouldn't say at least, but because based on confidence in karma and effects, that's important to have faith. And if somebody has, you know, have, has confidence in that, you know, they will live a, a good life. Yeah. Huh? And so they, they're they generous so they can be rich. That's good. But it's much better than the person who's stingy, who feels morally superior because they aren't selfishly wanting to be wealthy in their next life. Okay? For someone who lives an ethically corrupt life, desire to be reborn as a deva can induce him to relinquish harmful behaviors and keep precepts. Yeah, so that's you know, a good way to use that kind of attachment. Uh, the Buddha used it on his cousin, Nanda. Nanda was like so attached to his wife, and he had a wandering eye, and he was always looking at beautiful women, and he was perpetually distracted from his Dharma practice because he was like ogling women. Okay? So the Buddha took him on a trip one day, you know, and showed him this wasn't the usual trip. They didn't go in a chariot or a car. but he took Ananda to the God realm. and the God realm and and Nanda said, this is not Ananda, this is just Nanda. So Nanda saw the, uh, the devis in the God realm, who are infinitely more beautiful than human women. And he just went. And the Buddha said, if you create virtue, you can be reborn in that realm. That completely transformed Nanda's Dharma practice. Yeah, he stopped being distracted by worldly women and started really practicing well. I think, I hope, eventually he broke through that attachment too. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Buddha doesn't usually leave people just kind of halfway. He, you know. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, craving for the bliss of samadhi in the form and formless realms can inspire someone to cultivate concentration in order to be reborn in those realms. okay. So, yes, that is a self-centered motivation. But, you know, if they practice hard, they will attain rebirth in those places. And, you know, generating samadhi means you have a virtuous mind. Yeah, You have to stop creating non-virtue to, to generate samadhi. So these types of attachment are useful in those specific situations, okay? Doesn't mean attachment is useful all the time, and don't use that as an excuse. It means in those specific situations. However, for someone intent on liberation, those same cravings are hindrances because they are enamored with samsaric pleasures. So if your intention is to go beyond samsara, then those kinds of cravings, you know, for, for something good in a future life actually limit you. So you want to abandon those. Okay, now Ananda, so not Nanda, Ananda says that based on the craving for liberation, our highest spiritual aspiration, which is certainly virtuous, the unwanted forms of craving can be eliminated. The post-canonical Pali text, Netipakarana, speaks of virtuous and non-virtuous forms of craving and confirms that virtuous craving leads to the end of craving. For example, one monastic learns that another has become an arhat. And with the desire to attain arhatship, too, she practices diligently and becomes an arhat, one who has abandoned craving. Yeah? So, you know, they're inspired by something they saw somebody else do, or, or they're even thinking, oh, that person got, became an arhat before I did. I better catch up, you know? So, yeah, but it motivates them to overcome craving. Similarly, a monastic motivated by arrogance thinks, I am as capable as that person who attained arhatship. And this propels him to make effort and to become an arhat, somebody who has abandoned arrogance. Okay. So I heard, uh, in, you know, for the monks when they do debating that sometimes the, the teachers will do something like this. You know, they'll say, Oh, you know, you think you're such a good debater. So and so is better than you. And they make this one jealous of that one so that this one will study harder. And then he studies harder so he can beat the other one. Yeah. But in that way, he learns the Dharma better. So teachers will sometimes do that kind of thing. So this is similar to the idea of taking attachment on the path in Tantrayana. Here attachment is employed to make manifest the subtlest mind and use it to realize emptiness and destroy all obscurations, including attachment. Okay, so in Tantra, attachment is not transformed into the path, it is taken as the path and then used to overcome attachment. Okay, so how do we reconcile these examples? with a statement of Nagarjuna, the great sen- second-century Indian sage who spread the Madhyamaka. And his, here's his quote from uh, a Precious Garland. Attachment, anger, confusion, and karma that arises from them are non-virtuous. Hmm. That would seem to indicate that all attachment, all anger, all confusion are non-virtuous. Yeah? So uh, was Nagarjuna wrong? Or was Jampayang wrong? Okay. So attachment here refers to selfish desire for material possessions, praise, good reputation, and pleasant sensory experiences. Such attachment often leads to non-virtuous actions, while aspiration for the happiness of future lives can lead to virtuous actions. Okay. Anger and hatred, however, can never be motivating forces for virtue. They always lead to non-virtue. Okay. Here, confusion refers not to self-grasping ignorance, that is the root of samsara, but to the ignorance that does not understand karma and its effects. Because when you just read that, you know, attachment, anger, and confusion, and the uh, karma that that arises from them are non-virtuous. Well, confusion, I always have grasping at inherent existence. Does that mean I'm creating non virtue all the time? No, because here, confusion is referring to a specific type of ignorance, not the grasping at inherent existence, but the ignorance that doesn't, that misunderstands uh, how cause and effect and has many wrong views about that. Okay. While self-grasping ignorance can also precede virtuous actions, the ignorance that has a skewed view of ethical conduct will lead to mental, verbal, and physical non-virtuous paths of action. Okay? So I explained at the beginning how uh, a self-grasping ignorance can lie behind a virtuous action. Similarly, there are different ways to be, quote, quote, attached to a beautiful statue of the Buddha. One person wants a beautiful statue to inspire his daily meditation practice. Yeah? So they want to have a nice statue that they can look at and that inspires them to think of the Buddha's qualities and that they... that makes their mind peaceful and calm when they see it and helps them to meditate. Another person wants a beautiful statue. Oh, no, that's one person. Another person wants the same statue to show off to his friends or to sell for a profit. Okay? So here are two cases of two people who want a statue. One person is not attached to that statue. They have a good reason for wanting it. Yeah. To inspire their practice. The other person is attached to the statue and they're not seeing the statue as a representation of a Buddha. They're seeing it as an object in order, you know, to make their friends envious of what they have or in order to sell so that they can get some money. Okay. So don't think that wanting everything means attachment to it. This is a good example. Okay. These different motivations will bring different results in the present life and in future lives. In short, attachment may have diverse meanings in different contexts. This is illustrated by the four types of clinging mentioned in the teaching parting from the four clingings, that Manjushri gave to the great Sakya Lama, Kunga Ningpo. So we're gonna stop here and maybe have time for a few questions and then do the four, uh, parting from the four cleanings next time. Um, Could you say more about what you meant when you said that in Tantra attachment is taken as the path. It's not just transforming mm. the path and is transforming the sutra path. No, transforming. People often use that word transforming. I myself used it. But you cannot transform attachment or anger into the path. They're they're negative, they're naturally negative. They have to be relinquished. Okay. In the case of attachment, you can use that attachment to help in tantra actualize the subtlest mind and then use that mind to realize emptiness, and emptiness eliminates the attachment. So you're not actually transforming the attachment. You're using it in a skillful way to destroy attachment. How do we know we are a sp- a spa- inspired? And not attached to virtuous ac- results that lead to virtuous actions, And how do we balance that? If you want, if you desire virtuous results, yeah, like you know, you want to be a a, a human being with good ethical conduct, that's that's not attachment. That's a wonderful aspiration. Okay, So think about what I said. About, you know, attachment exaggerates the good qualities of something. Okay? When you want a good rebirth so that, or you want to be a good person, you're seeing something accurately. There are actual benefits from being a good human being. There are benefits of having a a precious human life, which isn't just any old life. Okay? Does that answer question? I hope so. Yes, next question. Anger towards the afflictions can empower us to counteract them. So anger can also be used to motivate virtue, right? It's not, no, it's not anger at the afflictions. It's seeing the disadvantages of the afflictions and feeling repulsed by them. Anger is based on exaggerating the negative qualities of someone and something. Yeah. It's difficult to exaggerate the negative qualities of afflictions because those are the things that keep us stuck in samsara. Okay. So it's not a question of, oh, I'm so mad at my anger. Because we usually turn that into, I'm so angry at myself. And that is another affliction. I think I If you subdue attachment to high degree through, for example, Lam Rim. Start at the beginning. If you subdue what? Attachment. Attachment, okay. To high degree through, for example, Lam Rim. Does this make Tantra less effective? Does Tantra need strong attachment? <laughs> no. You sh- you need to subdue your attachment to- with Lam Rim. Otherwise, if you try and practice Tantra, you're gonna go g- nuts with attachment and you'll misunderstand Tantra completely. We have to get a handle on our attachment. Yeah. Going back to the idea that Vasubandhu says that objects that give rise to afflictions are polluted, so therefore we can't be uh, attached to the Buddha or angry at the Buddha. Mm -hmm. So then going back in the last retreat where I was asking about this, getting a bit confused, so then… Say Devadatta being angry at the Buddha, that would not be him being angry at the Buddha, it's rather him being confused about his wrong view, or is that how it would be explained? Yeah, I mean, Devadatta's problem was that he was jealous of the Buddha. He wanted reputation, he wanted power, he wanted offerings. He was attached to those things. The Buddha was standing in his way of getting them. Okay. Okay, let's dedicate then.